everybody, welcome to Stock Bites for Tuesday, September 15th. I got a packed show for you today. I'm going to be discussing Zoom. Yes, that Zoom, the Zoom that's become a verb during quarantine, and parlay that discussion into what's currently happening with Nicola. I announced last week the, the launch of richby36.com. It's a new type of financial services website. We have a subscription newsletter for investors called The Beastly. Subscribers receive three stock trade ideas every Monday morning. I'm going to provide some updates on last week's picks, the email that went out on Tuesday, September 8th. Remember, uh, last Monday was a holiday. Finally, I'm going to run a new segment from Rich by 36's blog called Money Talks. And I've asked a bunch of young people what their most pressing challenge with money is. And I got some great responses. We're turning Rich by 36 into an all-encompassing financial resource to help people understand money. Uh, so the Beastly newsletter provides stock investing ideas. Rich by 36, uh, the Rich by 36 blog is kind of an amalgamation of financial news, ideas, and strategies. Last week, I, uh, for example, I posted an in-depth look at why the decline in the value of the dollar is good for several different companies. And then the Money Talks blog is a short podcast and, uh, and blog where I spend 10 minutes on a podcast interviewing people about their most pressing challenge with money. Come back on for a second part of the pod where I uh, provide information, answers, and resources to tackle the challenges presented in the first part of the show. And uh, all that is posted on a blog inside richby36.com on the Money Talks link. And then underneath the podcast is a blog with specific resources and answers and URLs and Excel spreadsheets and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, there's a lot going on. I'm expanding our offerings to help people understand money. That's our goal. I want young people to understand money and, and to not be afraid of money. All right. So with that out of the way, let's get to the show. Communications, ticker ZM is currently sitting at $401.25 per share. It's up almost 500% year-to-date. The coronavirus has turned Zoom into a household name and perhaps, more importantly, into a verb. The same way that Google has become analogous for searching for information on the Internet, Zoom has become the verb for video conferencing. Google it. Before diving into Zoom, I think it's important to understand the concept of moats, uh, moats are important for all companies to sustain profit over time, and they're even more important for companies that are mostly based on future earnings, like Zoom is. Zoom is valued at over $400 today because the market believes that Zoom can sustain and grow their earnings over the coming years. And a moat is best defined as a barrier that protects your business's margins from the erosive forces of competition. A superior product to your competition is not a moat. It's an advantage, and it's an advantage that can fade away over time. Just look at AOL Instant Messenger or Skype. Over time, your competitors continue to develop, and your superior product just turns into a product. Right now, Zoom has the superior video conferencing product. The video quality, the customizable backgrounds, the ease of access, et cetera, et cetera. They're all second to none, but Zoom currently does not have a moat. There are tons of other video conferencing applications, and more will pop up in the very near futures. Companies like Agora, ticker symbol API, have made the code uh, to enable video conferencing in new applications and websites easily accessible to everyone. 
Google Meets is growing and can obviously controlled by Google. Microsoft Teams can bundle video conferencing in. You get the point. There's a lot of competition in the space. So uh, I want to take a step back here and, and focus on Zoom's founder and CEO, Eric Yan, Yuan, Y-U-A-N, Eric Wan. Uh, when Eric arrived in the U.S., he worked as VP of engineering for an early video conferencing software company called WebEx. WebEx IPO'd in 2000 and was acquired by Cisco a few years later. Eric stayed on at Cisco for four more years, but increasingly became dissatisfied with the WebEx product. He explained in a podcast, and I'm quoting here, Every time I talked to a WebEx customer, I felt very embarrassed because I did not speak with a single happy WebEx customer. End quote. Eric realized that the product needed to be rebuilt and pitched the idea to his bosses at Cisco, who didn't bite. After that, Eric left to start his own company, Zoom. And what happened next is extremely important for the future of Zoom and ties directly into what's happening with Nicola right now. According to the Acquired podcast, uh, when and there, there'll be a link in the description for this to, to get to that podcast, but when Eric left Cisco... Basically, basically, everybody who knew him threw money at him. They all wanted to back whatever his next venture was. People who knew him believed in him as a person and a creator and knew that whatever he built would succeed. And, and Eric believed that the customer experience mattered and that video conferencing, uh, the current video, comp, uh, video conferencing applications just didn't cut it. So he founded Zoom in April of 2011 and launched the service in August of 2012. Even in 2012, his first iteration uh, of the service, Zoom was far and away the best product in the market. So here you have a CEO who worked for a large company for over a decade and got fed up with the inefficiencies of their product and the corporate red tape. He started his own company. Uh, friends and colleagues rushed to give him money and he built from the ground up. He reworked uh, video conferencing to, to launch the best product in the industry. He conservatively managed the company and when Zoom went public in 2019, they were already profitable, which it's something that rarely happens for growth in tech companies. If you fast forward to today, Zoom has a market cap of uh, $114 billion, a trailing 12-month price-to-earnings ratio of 515, a forward PE ratio of 246. These are truly astronomical figures. And on top of it all, they don't currently have a moat. The future of the company and the share price depends greatly on what Zoom does with its incredible and newfound fortune. Eric Wan and Zoom's management have earned uh, astronomical uh, wealth and fortune, due in large part to their focus on creating a superior product. And then uh, you also have a once-in-a-generation COVID lockdown, which pushed everyone in indoors. What they do next is going to set the course of the company's future. Can they transfer this awesome abundance of capital and find a way to build or construct a moat? Can they acquire a company like Agora that creates the code that other apps and websites use for video conferencing? Can they acquire a company like Slack to create an incredible network effect and become the dominant corporate communication application? Or do they do nothing and watch their advantages shrink as Google, Microsoft, and others increase the usability and effectiveness of their offerings. This is exactly why a company's leadership is so important. If I had to bet $401.25, I would say that Eric Wan and Zoom will be able to pull this off and that they're going to find their moat and that, will, and that Zoom will continue to maintain its status in American society as a verb. 
So if we compare and contrast that to what's happened with Nicola over the last 10 days, on September 8th, Nicola and GM announced a partnership to produce battery electric and fuel cell electric trucks, starting with the Nicola Badger pickup. Uh, the deal caught all types of headlines, and both companies' stocks skyrocketed the next day. And if you look at the deal, it seems like a very low-risk partnership for GM. Nikola will use GM's production, batteries, and fuel cell capabilities to produce the Nikola trucks. GM receives an 11% equity stake in Nikola and up to $700 million in expense reimbursement. Essentially, GM isn't risking a thing, and they now have a sizable lottery ticket in an upstart electric vehicle company. Two days after that merger was announced, Hindenburg Research... The famed short sellers published an incredibly detailed piece on Nicola titled, uh, quote, Nicola, how to parlay an ocean of lies into a partnership with the largest auto OEM in America, end quote. And the report is damning. Hindenburg gathered extensive evidence, including phone calls, text messages, private emails, and behind-the-scenes photographs detailing dozens of false statements made by Nicola founder Trevor Milton and quote, has never seen this level of deception at a public company, especially of this size, end quote. Now, the point of this isn't to dive into the alleged fraud committed by Trevor Milton. And I do highly rec- recommend that you read the article. I'm, after reading it, I'm hard-pressed to believe this guy's not going to prison and that this company isn't going bankrupt. But that's besides the point. The, the point of this is to compare and contrast two CEOs of extraordinarily expensive companies, one who treated the customers the most important part of the business, and whose friends and colleagues quite literally couldn't give them enough money in order to get to become part of their business. And then the other who has lied and, and failed his way to the top of a $20 billion company that doesn't produce a product or, or have any revenue. And I'm going to read to you straight from the Hindenburg article for the next several paragraphs. What's the difference between a visionary selling a daring view of the future and a con artist? Tech founders are often accused of being overly rosy with their projections. Supporters credit such founders as having bold, forward-thinking plans, while detractors accuse them of knowingly selling unrealistic promises. While such debates among optimists and pessimists are common, most everyone can agree that there is a difference, difference between being overly optimistic about the future and outright lying. What follows is a deep dive on the origins of Nicola Corp and its founder, Trevor Milton. What we found is that for over a decade, instead of developing his own capabilities, Trevor has established an undeniable track record of taking from others and claiming technology as his own. He has quietly used off-the-shelf products from third parties while loudly claiming to have vast proprietary technology. Trevor would then leverage what he had and repeatedly mislead customers, partners, and investors in order to build his credibility and take his concept to the next level. This pattern of behavior uh, behavior continues to this day, now with billions of dollars on the line and with Nikola tied to some of the largest auto companies in the world. Part 1. Trevor Milton's career path leading up to Nikola. November 2009. Trevor Milton launches D-Hybrid Incorporated with a partner, kicking off his electric vehicle trucking journey. It ended in litigation with allegations of misappropriations and false promises. After dropping out of college, Trevor Milton started an alarm sales company in Utah called St. George Security and Alarm. He eventually exited the business for 300000 Our interview with its buyer indicated that Trevor overpromised, resulting in a total loss for the initial acquirer. 
We also interviewed Trevor's 50-50 business partner who indicated that he was led to believe the exit was much smaller, saying he ultimately received only $100,000 for his 50%. Following the alarm business exit, Trevor launched an online classified ads website that sold used cars called upillar.com, which eventually failed. And then following these two early pursuits, Trevor's initial foray into alternative energy vehicles was a company called D-Hybrid Incorporated. Trevor joined forces with an engineer named Mike Shrout, who had developed compressed natural gas conversion technology, CNG, for diesel engines. Shrout was to bring the technical expertise to the venture, while Trevor would bring his business expertise. It got off to a good start. D-Hybrid entered into an agreement with major trucking company Swift to convert up to 800 trucks, a contract valued at $16 million. Shortly after launching D-Hybrid, Trevor contacted Jerry Moyes, CEO of Swift Transportation, to market D-Hybrid's conversion technology. According to a source familiar with the company, the team demonstrated the technology on, on a converted pickup truck to Moyes at Swift's Phoenix facility. Moyes was apparently impressed with the demo, and Swift eventually signed a development agreement paying $2 million for a 9% stake in D-Hybrid, as well as extending a $322,000 loan to the company. The agreement, which Hindenburg located through litigation records, called for the conversion of initial uh, of an initial 10 trucks for testing with a commitment to convert 800 trucks thereafter. Swift later sued, uh, alleging that the company delivered only five trucks that didn't work and that D-Hybrid's officers misappropriated capital for personal use. The deal Im- immediately hit roadblocks as D-Hybrid failed to deliver on its agreement. Swift filed a lawsuit in the mid uh, in mid-2012, a subsequent um, uh, addended, amended complaint alleged that only five trucks had been delivered instead of the promised 10 and that performance of the trucks didn't live up to the initial promises and that the capital had been misappropriated. In the lead up to the lawsuit, Trevor reached out to new investors claiming that Swift's contract was worth 250 to 300 million. In reality, Hindenburg has the contract. It was only 16 million. Following the Swift litigation, D-Hybrid sought a buyout, but the Deal ended in more litigation, with the buyer alleging D-Hybrid made numerous misrep- misrepresentations about its capabilities. So in dire financial straits, Trevor sought to negotiate a buyout with a company called Sustainable Power Group, based in Salt Lake City, Utah. The parties entered into negotiations and signed a term sheet in May 2012, but only one month later in June, uh, S-Power exercised the termination clause and backed out of the agreement, citing significant misrepresentations during their due diligence process. Shortly after, when D-Hybrid disputed S-Power's findings, S-Power filed a lawsuit alleging that D-Hybrid had not, as represented, completed development of the D-Hybrid system. Uh, in 2012, with D-Hybrid mirrored in litigation, Trevor started a new company with his dad, choosing a very similar name, D-Hybrid Systems. Trevor then falsely claimed to prospective partners that D-Hybrid had been in operation for, for years. In 2014, D-Hybrid Systems was then acquired by Worthington, a successful exit for Trevor. We learned from a a former employee in a recorded call that D-Hybrid could seal potentially fatal product issues with Worthington in order to get the deal done. Uh, Let's see, in recent interviews, Trevor has overstated the exit value in a 2019 interview with Trucks.com. For example, he claimed that his $15.9 million exit was uh, for much more than $20 million. Um, Let's see here. I I don't want to belabor this point. Uh, So using Worthington's credibility, Trevor then apparently made false claims about Nicola's proprietary technology in order to induce partners to work with him. 
In 2016, after cobbling together truck parts with deceptively constructed partnership agreements, Nikola announced it revolutionized transportation. Uh, they, were, they were known at that time as Blue Gen Tech, uh, and then became Nikola. And, and according to former employees and partners working on the Nikola One, uh, the company's first proposed semi-truck progress was slow, but in, in May 9th, uh, on May 9th, 2016, Nikola came out of stealth mode announcing it would develop a product that would revolutionize the field of transportation. Uh, by the end of the year, Nikola revealed its revolu- revolutionary new truck. Uh, in the months leading up to the presentation, a user asked Nikola whether the truck would be a design unveiling or a functional prototype. Nikola confirmed that it would be a functioning and fully built truck at the event. Bloomberg later identified that, that the truck was not completed. Trevor responded by admitting this, then claimed he never said it was completed, despite video evidence clear, clearly contradicting, contradicting him, and then he threatened to sue Bloomberg. Look, all right, so I'm going to stop reading from the article. This goes on and on and on. The Hindenburg report is massive. It's, it's detailed. It's damning. I don't know anyone who can read through the report and still want to invest in Nikola. The point is that the quality and, and character of a corporation's leadership has tremendous influence over whether or not you, as the stockholder, will make money. And if the company can continue to operate and grow and, and succeed. I didn't know all this about Trevor Milton and Eric Jan, Eric Wan, before prepping for this podcast. But I'm certainly going to be paying closer attention to the history of the company's leadership before investing in new companies. And that's what I think is most important that you can take from this. New companies. Like if you, Tim Cook has been in the public eye for so long, and Apple is such a giant that there's not going to be any surprises in Tim's closet. And I imagine becoming the CEO of a company like Apple is pretty similar to running for president of the United States, where all your dirt becomes public on your path to to the office. But for all these new tech companies sprouting up, do your homework. Don't just look at performance numbers or at a chart that's going up. Those are fickle. Does the company have a moat? And if they don't, can management be trusted to build one? Do you trust Eric Jan as a steward of your capital? Or do you trust somebody like Trevor Milton? All right, Kate, thanks for joining me at Rich by 36. When we spoke earlier, you told me that uh, your number one challenge with money was your car payment. And so can you tell me a little bit more about what you're struggling with and how you got into the situation that you find yourself in? Sure. So, you know, heavily it concerns COVID-19, of course. Uh, I'm not the only one struggling, obviously. A lot of people are. But, um, you know, back before the pandemic ever hit, I was in a really good standing with my company uh, on the growth track to make nearly six figures. And I've always wanted to buy a new car. So about um, 10 months ago, back in November, I bought my first car. And, um, you know, since then, obviously, it was it was going fine. But then in March, of course, COVID hit. So now I have this brand new 2019 Toyota car that I bought. And um, obviously, there's been some some changes with the world going on, and um, it's become sort of a, a, a bigger and bigger 
chunk out of my unemployment money since I was furloughed from my company. Yeah. What preparation did you do before going to the dealership in terms of, you know, did you have a specific budget in mind for monthly payment that you're looking up, you know, looking for? And how'd you come up with the number and how far in advance did you actually plan the purchase? We were looking about six months before I made a decision to buy. And that was simply because we were looking for the right time, the right price. Uh, my goal was to stay under 20000 total for a new car. And I was looking at monthly payment in terms of my monthly salary. Um, I wanted to only pay about 10% of my monthly salary um, to my car. So that's how I budgeted my monthly payment without insurance. That would be a separate cost added on later. But I settled it down to where I wanted to pay no more than 400 a month for a car payment. How did you come up with the 10% number? That's interesting. I haven't heard that before. Um, well, I think it's because of my experience just talking to friends and family about what they've paid on their cars in the past. Um, you know, it sounded like such a large chunk in terms of our friends and family who pay somewhere between six and 700 a month for their car payments. And I thought that was outrageous. So, you know, I would ask myself what would be suitable, what would be comfortable for me with my, um, my monthly earnings. I got about 4,000 a month, so I was doing really well. And um, I only wanted about 10% of that 4000 to go to my car payment. So that's where the 10% of, okay. of my salary came from. Did you talk to the, your car insurance company about what was going to happen after you bought a new car and what was going to happen to your insurance rates? No. And I wish that I did talk to them uh, uh, shortly after I got a car. I got into an accident, a small little accident. It was no, no, no cars were moving. I was just backing up and it doubled my car insurance. I went from $100 full coverage to $350 a month. So it more than tripled my monthly, uh, car, ins- my monthly car insurance. And so, you know, I was looking at $750 a month for a car, for my car insurance and my car payment. And then with COVID, of course, you know, I didn't have my amazing earnings anymore. Um, and unemployment just wasn't cutting it. So I kind of let the the insurance tack on for about three or four months. And then I realized, you know, we can't afford this anymore. You know, we can't, we can't do this anymore. So I started looking around for another um, insurance company. So I switched from Geico to Allstate and I saved, I, it went back down to about 200 a month versus mm-hmm. 350. Yeah. I, I did the same thing with Geico. Once I got my wife on uh, our insurance, it just, it ballooned like crazy mm. and just switching to another company. We got the same exact coverage and it really helped, but have you looked at other avenues of you know, selling the car or, you know, is there anything else that you could do or that you've looked at to, uh, to get out of this situation? Honestly, no, I haven't thought about selling it simply because I've never sold a car before and I don't even know where I would start. Right. I don't know anything about it. Um, you know, who knows what could happen here in a few months, I could get a call that I have my job back. And the reason why I bought a new car, uh, a nice new car is because I had a lot of client work in my car and picking them up a lot. It, you know, I had to have that image in sales. So I haven't thought about getting a new car. I haven't thought about selling in my car. I haven't thought about trading. I haven't thought about any of that. Okay. Uh, what has been the emotional impact? And if, and if you can separate COVID from 
from all of this? You know, what's just the emotional impact of the car payment every month? Uh, you know, going through the the process of switching insurances. How has that been for you emotionally? Well, nobody likes to go find a new insurance. It's really annoying and you have to dig and dig and try to find the best one that works for you. And, you know, once you sign up for that one website to get a quote, then everybody's emailing you all the time. So that's terrible, of course. That experience is terrible. But I am, you know, I think I minimized all that drama just by looking into MileWise and taking a lot of stress off of it. Because I was, you know, MileWise, I don't know if you know about it, but you, you plug it into your car and you literally only pay your car insurance per mile that you drive. So you plug it in, you only pay it per mile, and that's what your monthly payment. You can save a lot of money doing that. And with Allstate? Yeah, that, with Allstate. Allstate's okay. Yep, Allstate. So they found an avenue for me. Um, simply because I'm not driving anywhere right now that much yeah. because I don't have a job. So I thought I might as well pay per mile because I'm not driving le- that much at all and, and save that way. But, you know, emotionally, when you buy a car, it was my first time I bought a car. I was very proud of myself that I was able to buy my first car. Um, you know, I was willing to take on all the extra research. I was proud of my decision that I made. I have no buyer's remorse whatsoever. Um, so I was, I was proud of myself. It came with a sense of pride, you know, as a millennial to buy a car, I think for my first time ever, as you know, you finally reach adulthood, I feel if, mm-hmm. if you can buy your first car. Um, but you know, taking COVID out of it, I'm still very proud of myself for doing that. And I'm proud of myself for what and how we handled, uh, COVID to actually work as an advantage for my car payments. And uh, I can go into that. What do, what do you mean? So initially when unemployment was going on, you know, they tacked on that extra stimulus money. And so we minimized cost of living simply by moving out of our apartment to the in-laws. So we saved money on rent and we just pocketed that stimulus money. We pocketed it. I mean, for, for months and I paid off $7,000 of my car in six months just by pocketing that stimulus money. Um, and so I think it's actually worked to an advantage, uh, the COVID-19 situation, because it's given, it's given us that extra, uh, the extra money. You're so, talking about like the, the extra unemployment benefits that were coming from the federal government. Right. That's right. Let me, let me backtrack here. And this, I think I got one or two more questions for you, but when you went to the dealership, did you feel any pressure? How, how did you choose which dealership to go to? Sure. Um, and did you feel any pressure once you walked onto the dealership? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's always pressure depending on where you go. I first looked into getting um, something uh, from a BMW dealership. And the moment I walked on, you know, everyone was swarming me. Um, you know, I was really looking at this one car, but something just didn't feel right And with the, with the salespeople, with the manager. You know, they would come, kind of come over and um, bring the manager over and kind of accost me a little bit. I went there twice and I didn't go back a third time simply because the saleswoman stopped answering my questions on my phone calls. So she lost me as a customer. Um, and then we went to a couple other dealerships where, you know, we just, it just didn't, the price wasn't right. The car, they didn't have what I kind of wanted. Um, they didn't have the, the size that I needed. And then what made me settle on Toyota of Katie was, you know, I was immediately welcomed. There's no pressure at all. Nobody came over to accost me. Nobody's manager came over and sat me down and said, you know, here's what we're going to do. Uh, no, it was completely up to me. I went back four or five times before I even bought the car. 
just to make sure, make a thousand percent sure that I felt safe in my purchase, safe in everything like that. Went through all everything. Um, I even went through Toyota of Kata, Toyota of Katie for um, their interest, their, their loan on a loan on the vehicle uh, for mm-hmm. a couple of months, and that that saved me a big deal. Like it saved me a couple thousand on the car in general. And I really liked my salesperson. My, you know, I think that makes all the difference is who you're talking to and who can make you feel safe and who really has your best interest. Because I know I didn't get screwed. I know I didn't get, you know, I know I got a really good deal. And by the end of it, the salesperson and I were like best friends. I think that's the best experience you can ask for when going to buy a car is, is feeling no buyer's remorse, uh, feeling confident about your decision, even though it was a hefty purchase for me. I don't regret making the decision even now, despite the pandemic. So I think that's that's the best scenario for everybody. Has this been a positive uh, thing for you and, and your family? I would say so. So when I bought my car, I gave my husband um, the old car I was using first because his car he had he had really bad car luck. He bought a new car and it pooped on him in the first week. Um, so there was you know thousands of dollars down the drain. So I said, okay, I'll get a new car and you can have mine, my old one. Um, so I think it's really helped us in terms of being a good team financially. Um, you know, my husband's mentioned helping me with the payments. Um, you know, personally for me, I don't want that because I'm very, I'm very much, you know, I need to, to deliver on the decision that I made to purchase the car. And even though it's COVID, I'm still going to work hard and try and get another job to help pay it off. Um, but otherwise, it's when we go to, when we take my car, it's, it's a pleasant experience. I'd rather take my car than his car anywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that new suspension makes a ton of difference. That's right. <laughs> okay. Thank you for joining us on our That's first good. episode of money talks. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there's actually a second part to this interview that I just recorded with Kate. Uh, You can access it by going to richby36.com and clicking on the Money Talks tab. Again, this is a, you know, we're asking millennials, what's your biggest challenge with money? And we've gotten some great answers from, you know, saving and budgeting to buying a car to student loan debt to understanding the psychology of money. And we're going to post one episode a week at richby36.com. Click on the Money Talks tab at the top of the website. We're going to close out the week with an update on the Beastly. Uh, on September 7th, we recommended three stocks, DocuSign, State Street, and Mercado Libre. The newsletter that we send out, we're looking for stocks that have been trending, that are in a positive uptrend. This is for investors. This isn't for gamblers. This is, um, you know, we're, we're laying a fundamental screen and a technical screen over a company, Right. Uh, DocuSign, State Street, and Mercado Libre are all quality holds, and these are things that we'd be happy with you buying and holding for a long time. However, so in the newsletter, uh, you know, there's there is fundamental analysis on why we like this company, but then we take a technical screen and lay it over it. And for DocuSign, State Street, Mercado Libre, in order, uh, the purchase price that we recommended that you go out and buy this was uh, two sixteen. 68 and 1086. And so in the newsletter, we said, look, you know, enter your market order here uh, on Monday morning, and then follow up with a stop loss and a limit order to bracket in your up and downside return. So for uh, DocuSign, 
our uh, our downside target where we want you to set your stop loss order is at $167. Our upside target was at $346, giving you 22, 23% downside potential with 60% upside potential, right? That's almost three, three to one, uh, up to one, uh, up to down. And, you know, State Street was about a, a two to one up to down. And the Mercado Libre was uh, 15% downside with 80% upside target potential. And so what we want you to do, and, and what we hope, you know, look, either buy and hold, or if you want to actually trade a little bit smarter and trade like a technical analyst, we're, we're giving you the, the, fund, the, the technical levels uh, that, we think the stock would, uh, you know, look, if it goes up, here's where there'll be some resistance. And if it goes down, if it passes this level, this is where the trend is broken and, and you'll automatically sell, you'll automatically be out of the position and you can rotate on to something else. So since September 7th, not a huge, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? We don't, you know, uh, body of work or, or whatever the case is, but look, it's, we're still within those ranges. DocuSign's down about 6.8%, State Street 65 and uh, Mercado Libre about 5%. But I think that the larger trend remains intact. And this is, this is par for the course, right? We, we want to celebrate winners, and we also want to be honest. And, and uh, look, if we, if we do, if any one of these three companies does fall to hit our downside, our, our stop-loss order, that's a positive thing for us, right? We've managed risk in a successful way, and, and we're just going to reallocate that capital somewhere else. So we'll keep you updated next week. Uh, we'll talk about this week's stocks that we recommended, and I think there were some good ones here. Uh, you know, Zillow, Crocs, and Canadian uh, National Railway, CNI. But this was a really fun week, guys. Uh, I hope you liked the show. Like and subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to the podcast. Go check out richby36.com. If you uh, subscribe to the Beastly today, you'll get six trades for free, two free weeks. You can cancel at any time. After that, it's just 30 bucks a month. And then we do have a ton of other free resources on the website to help you educate yourself, become uh, more comfortable with money, uh, and, and to understand money. So, yeah, that's the show. We'll talk to you soon. I'll shoot.